Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, happy Thursday, Solar Warriors. Welcome back. I'm super delighted to have you tune in yet again to explore the career and lessons learned from clean energy executives to inspire and inform your own journey and growth. If you're new to Suncast, welcome to our tribe. I hope you'll find this information helps you enter through the side door and bypass some of those hard-won life lessons from the hundreds of guests we've had on the show so far. Today, we're going to explore something many of you may take for granted, the humble but all-too-important electric service panel. When's the last time you even looked at yours? And would you guess that an ex-Tesla executive could raise $10 million to give your fuse box the long-awaited tech upgrade that it deserves? Well, then stick around as I go down the rabbit hole with Arch Rao, founder and CEO of Span.io. We learn all about not only how his company is giving your home a smarter service panel, but we also, of course, ponder how his previous roles and startup experience prepared him for Tesla and why he stepped away from that dream job to farm Span. If this is even remotely interesting or the kind of story arc that you really dig into, then I suggest you check out the hundreds of additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. And while you're at it, since it's clear that you like to invest in yourself and stay informed, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast and our Energy Tribe newsletter. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as promised, we are going to dive into the life and times, the career choices and navigation path of a startup CEO, serial entrepreneur who has experience uh, at the startup level as well as uh, large entities uh, like Tesla. Arch Rao is the founder and CEO of Span, span span.io on the web. It's a technology company that is reinventing the humble electric panel to enable rapid adoption for renewable energy. And I'm sure we're going to explore how else it's advancing the very technology that supports your home devices. We are going to also explore the the background of this engineer and entrepreneur and his expertise in storage systems and their integration into our energy world. Arch Rao, welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. Well, Arch, you have a fascinating story, and I've really been looking forward to this. It's worth noting that, uh, like so many things, uh, life uh, got in the way of this interview <laughs> a number of times. Uh, we had it booked in May, and uh, and my internet foibles here in Mexico pre- prevented us from actually making it happen. Uh, and then uh, you brought another beautiful life into the world with your wife. So the summer has That's been, right. uh, I imagine, a chaotic one for you. How are you guys uh, faring in California with uh, with all the chaos of new family plus the sort of the macroeconomic environment happening right now. 
Yeah, chaos certainly seems to be the theme uh, of the season. Uh, but, you know, we've, we're doing well. Um, we, we added a second child to our family and uh, she's doing incredibly well and she's healthy. So on the personal side, uh, we've been, we feel enormously rewarded, uh, albeit very tired. On the professional side, you know, despite what's happening in the world and what's happening here in California, we're finding there is additional inertia in the system when it comes to adoption of distributed energy technologies, but at the same time, the the need for technologies like distributed solar and batteries is only amplified. With the world on fire around you right now. <laughs> literally, yeah. Yeah, literally. Well, Arch, you many may not realize that you weren't always a, uh, a shoe-in for uh, energy entrepreneur. You started your career as an academic, an international student at that. Help me understand the decision framework that took you from PhD candidate to startup employee number one? Like many people that, that come from, from, I think, parts of the world like India, which is where I grew up, uh, academic pursuits are very highly regarded. I went from a bachelor's degree in automobile engineering to a master's degree in mechanical engineering. And the obvious next hill to climb for me was getting a PhD and so I enrolled in the PhD program in energy engineering at Stanford. And I was working on very interesting technical problems centered around making fossil fuel power conversion. So power plants to IC engines more energy efficient, if you will. But despite the fact that I was learning a lot, what I, what I realized was the, the rate at which I was going to have impact on the world was going to be incredibly slow, uh, taking the academic route. Not to mention, uh, after about four years of fairly intense research, I, I, I came to the realization that incremental efficiency gains in engines or power plants is not how we're going to dramatically impact climate change. Yeah, it took four years to get to that point, but you, know, you really have to get into the science of it to understand what's been done, what could be done, and then what are the theoretical limits of, of achievement uh, by dedicating your life to it. You know, also being being in the Silicon Valley and looking at, uh, and this is in the in the mid two thousands, looking at uh, a large number of companies, um, clean energy companies, beginning to ride the clean tech wave, if you will, was certainly a calling. Right, you were you were seeing that there were a number of companies working on new technologies for high efficiency solar modules, the companies working on um, larger and better wind turbines, if you will. Storage and electric vehicles were still you know, far into the future at that point in time. But it, it certainly seemed like there was a movement that I needed to be part of. And I wasn't going to be part of that movement by doing academic research work. Well, like so many, you had an opportunity uh, as an academic uh, hopeful and four years of research. And that led you to an opportunity with a national lab or, or to kind of stick around in Silicon Valley and go to startup route. Mm -hmm. How and why did you make the decision to go the startup route? Um, it actually wasn't that difficult a decision. I think the, the the national lab was going to be a very familiar and sort of safe job, if you will. Um, I, this, the skill sets and tools that I had gained in in a PhD program were immediately applicable to the job that I would have that I've entered into. I chanced upon a meeting with a gentleman called Jobin Bevitt, who had also previously graduated from Stanford and had built a number of companies in the consumer space, but now was looking to solve bigger challenges. And one of the one of the challenges that he was trying to address was how do you get low cost power generation at scale um, with, with wind? We had a few intense sessions trying to whiteboard out what technologies were out there, what the challenges were with the grid and how do you, uh, how do you distribute um, wind power generation globally? 
And there was a very interesting problem to be solved in the realm of airborne wind generation, which is uh, as you get higher up from the ground, the winds get stronger and more consistent. But traditional wind turbines are naturally sort of limited to how tall they can be because they are structurally you know, mounted to the ground. Um, so if we could build contraptions that could fly and simultaneously generate power and send it down the ground, we've got a potentially um, higher uh, capacity factor power generation solution at least. Um, I'll be honest, like part of my decision was wanting to stay in California. Part of my decision was was just being enamored by by somebody like Joe Ben, who was an incredible entrepreneur and, and very passionate entrepreneur. And sensing that you know, I was early enough in my career that taking a chance to go and build a company and learning things outside of research would be valuable to me. And I think that's that's shown to be true so far. What year roughly was this? 2008. 2008. So this was long before... Makani, as an example, got acquired by Google. I mean, this was like really early days for flying wind turbines. Yeah, coincidentally, Makani was another group that came out of Stanford that was trying to solve uh, the same problem, or not solve the same, but approach the same opportunity, if you will, of harnessing um, uh, higher power density, energy density winds in upper altitudes. And we spent a lot of hours, a lot of days working with them, inspiring with them on ideas. These were the very early days of the airborne wind turbine pioneers. So you spent a lot of time uh, working on solving this acute uh, and specific way of generating electricity. But my understanding is that there was still a bit lacking on understanding around energy economics. How did you, upon realizing that, how did you go about solving that gap in your skill set? That's a good question. My value or my contribution to Joby, I would say, was largely bringing sort of a systems approach to the problem. I'm not an aeronautical engineer by training. I'm not a um, advanced controls engineer by training. I was a mechanical engineer with an understanding of energy systems at a uh, system, at a small system at a, a power generation level, and then at the macro grid level. So we spent a lot of time doing extensive modeling of understanding the source of power. So looking at um, how much, how many terawatt hours of energy was in fact present in the upper atmosphere or in the atmosphere cumulatively. If we were to build devices, theoretical devices that could convert that, that energy into harnessable energy, what would that look like? And then based on first principles, if you were to build a device at X dollars per watt, what would be the effective level S cost of energy or LCOE, if you will? Um, so that was the very first piece of work that we had to do. And that sort of naturally led me into working on parts of the engineering team, but also working a lot on the, the commercial aspects of the commercial problems and the regulatory problems we had to solve. So, Personally, that was a phenomenal experience for me because up until that point, I'd mostly only been solving very linear technical problems. And now I got thrown in the deep end of the pool trying to understand the landscape in, in a far more comprehensive way, if you will. After I left pro- the program at Stanford and I was uh, working on uh, Jovi Energy with, with Joven and some other exceptional engineers, I, I kept in touch with researchers. I worked with some researchers at Berkeley that were working on you know, large-scale grid representations um, trying to understand the impact, future impact of energy storage and future impact of mass adoption of electric vehicles and so on. That sort of forward-looking modeling, it was something that I always have been interested in. Around the time, I think it was around 2010 uh, or 2011, I forget now, when uh, Makani had secured funding from Google and it was um, sort of apparent that Joby Energy and, and Makani were very likely going to end up becoming a single team to maximize the chances of success there. I decided to look for other opportunities and then chanced upon a small group called LCG that had been building 
production costing models, trying to build representations of, of different electrical grids, be it the California ISO, be it the ISO New England, be it the Texas market or the PJM market. The part that I was most interested in is looking at these future scenarios. What does the grid look like? What does the world look like if in a decade we had over 50% power generation from renewables? What does it look like if you know 3 million EV adopters showed up on the California grid over a five-year period of time? And those are very complex and very interesting problems. And that really, I think, seeded the idea in my mind that uh, not only was this economically feasible, but in fact necessary for us to be able to move away. So the idea of needing storage when you have a large amount of renewables on the grid became on paper or quantitatively very apparent, right? And that technologies like natural gas speakers were not going to be the, the holy grail solution in the future. Well, it doesn't seem like you were willing to stray too far from your sort of entrepreneurial leanings. My sense is that LCG didn't uh, didn't occupy a long duration uh, on your on your resume before you uh, co-founded another company called Vertigris uh, in energy metering. What drew you back into starting your own company again? Consulting was not for me. I, I didn't particularly enjoy advising large corporations on or you know uh, market participants on what the future of the grid might look like or what sort of near term. Uh, near-term or real-time energy pricing would look like. I really wanted to build products that could have an impact on the world. Vertigris was an interesting, interesting idea. It, it, it actually moved me in the direction of technologies that I hadn't worked on. So I'd worked on energy conversion in school. I'd worked on power generation uh, at, uh, at Joby. But I wanted to understand more and more of the load side of the equation. I wanted to understand the demand side of the equation. And Vertigris held this incredible promise of being able to use artificial intelligence or some, some form of machine learning software, if you will, broadly, right, and inexpensive hardware to better understand what's happening in, in, in a building. So it was a hardware and software platform for disaggregation, which at the time was a very novel concept and a novel term. But very simply put, it's trying to use a bunch of sensors and algorithms to discern exactly what was consuming energy inside a large building. And for those who haven't taken a look at your LinkedIn, so timescale here is somewhere 2010 to 2012 timeframe, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So a decade ago, you're looking at <laughs> how to apply. Uh, I mean, it seems as so often is the case that it was a great idea ahead of its time, because obviously you pivoted from that to uh, another job that uh, we'll talk about in a minute. Before we move away from Vertigus, I can imagine that you learned uh, a lot and you gleaned from that experience a lot, not only about how to run a hardware company uh, with software component, which is very relevant to what you're doing today, but what about the lessons on how not to do business? Yeah. Well, let me start with the good things. Right? Like first, I have to, I have to credit my co-founders, uh, uh, Mark Chung and Jonathan Chu, who were the, the, the technical leaders in the organization. They came from the world of software. They came from the world of communication and uh, data packet analysis. They essentially brought forward this idea of using um, some of the algorithmic concepts from that domain, the telecom domain, if you will, or the internet domain, to the domain of energy. And I think that was very appealing to me. In this space, again, I was more, let's say, the, uh, the, the commercial leader or the product leader trying to define how would, we, how would we bring this technology to the market and who would want to adopt this technology? And like, like many 
early stage companies, it started with a very simple, tangible problem, which was Mark, I think, realizing that over a vacation period of time, his home consumed a tremendous amount of energy and not knowing where that energy consumption or energy draw came from and wanting to solve that for himself. And that then became a passionate mission, if you will. We ended up learning a number of things along the way. First, um, that residential customers, because of the cost of energy, especially in the United States, residential customers often don't want to spend a whole lot of money trying to understand what's happening in their home, um, especially as uh, you know, using a solution that was just going to tell them what's happening as opposed to allowing them to control uh, something in their home. Um, and that problem uh, and that uh, market understanding led us to focusing more on commercial industrial customers that would want to understand what's happening in the building more so from the standpoint of anomalies and performance that, uh, that if fixed, led to uh, avoiding service costs, avoiding downtime. And that was a much more relevant uh, or, or a valuable solution, if you will. The challenge, however, is the commercial industrial space is, is, is complicated from a decision-making standpoint, from an ownership standpoint, from an accountability standpoint. You have building owners, you have tenants, you have building managers, you have energy service providers, you have technology vendors uh, that, that maintain and operate your air handlers, your chillers, your, um, you know, your cooling systems, et cetera, right? So it was very diff difficult to identify a stakeholder and oftentimes uh, educating these stakeholders was a fairly challenging process, if you will. Not to mention, it was very difficult to distinguish the importance of technology from a similar low-cost solution that at least claimed to have the same value that was just high in human touch and low in technology, right? So long story short, I think that the company continues to exist, but I think it's, it, it continues to be an incredibly challenging path to, to penetrate that market segment without strong partners that are incumbents in the space. And that, to me, as a business model, is, is flawed. Right. If if your if your path to growth is dependent on incumbents, then <laughs> that that's that's not a disruptive business model. You know the the CNI sector, as many have experienced in in the solar industry, is fraught with many areas of difficulty. Uh, multiple stakeholders, mm -hmm. multiple stakeholders to make decisions. Many who are not incentivized to make decisions on a timely basis, and certainly not incentivized to partner with startups mm -hmm. over over organizations that uh, provide similar, uh, we'll call it metering or monitoring services like the Honeywells mm -hmm. of the world, right? So I can imagine it was a very difficult commercialization process. Uh, I can also imagine that it was difficult to raise money for that kind of a venture. What did you learn through the fundraising process to get Verticris off the ground? We're sort of contextualized this in the, in the macro um, sense as well, right? This was in now getting to be in the, in the mid or the early part of this decade, so in the 2011, 12, 13 timeframe. And we had seen sort of the rise and fall of some of the clean tech giants, if you will, the companies that had secured large amounts of money from, from loan guarantees, from, uh, from RPE, and hadn't succeeded in, in delivering the promise of US-made low-cost solar. And so there was this backdrop. And so these there was certainly a trend or a move away from venture capitalists to, to heavily fund energy technologies, especially, especially ones that were hardware heavy, right? Um, and Vertigus was definitely trying to build uh, a piece of, you know, piece of hardware, simple as it might have been at the time, it still needed uh, capitalization to do so. Um, so the fundraising environment was definitely different. You know, the commercial challenges we talked about made it a, a bit more challenging. And I think that that may have resulted in, in raising capital from strategics that are not your ideal early stage investors. 
right? Strategic being, um, you know, manufacturers uh, or sort of contract manufacturers or strategics that might be um, incumbent industry um, service providers, they, they, they tend to pull you in a direction that may not be as visionary, if you will. So I think, you know, again, not, not, to, not to divulge too much here about the specifics, but every company has that, at that decision point, like, do I raise money from an entity that's willing to put money into us? ensure survivability or do we do we hold on to our convictions and try to find an investor that that's really bought into our uh, our our vision and i think there was some uh, there was certainly some missteps along the way from my point of view, from my personal point of view yeah yeah i think it's important to raise from the right people as you point out and so difficult mm-hmm. it's so difficult to know along the path if they're the right people so uh, it's important to surround yourself as well with uh with mentors who can give you that advice you know many who are familiar with their story probably wonder about how you uh, got involved in Tesla at such, at such an early stage. Tell me how you connected with or knew J.B. Straubel, because I know he led the, the, the area of the business that you uh, ultimately ended up working in. Yeah. Yeah. The saying about right time, right place uh, is, is very anecdotally captured in my, in my experience joining Tesla. After leaving Vertigris, I think I was I was pretty um, I was in a pretty challenging space because you know leaving a company that you'd helped found and finding that there was no longer a strong fit for you there is 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 a, is a pretty challenging life event. And then I was trying to you know layered on top of that is sort of the personal complexity of being an immigrant and having to find a way to stay in the country with visas and things like that. Uh, but I was I was reluctant to just take up any job. I I was I was really keen on trying to find you know my true calling, if you will, trying to find. Uh, an experience that would be additive and would also be different from what I had done so far. So a lot of the decision-making process involves understanding how you got to where you are so that you can make a better decision on where you want to go. I had done the startup thing now almost continuously for a period of five years, and clearly it hadn't panned out to be this glorious unicorn company that I'd built, companies that I'd built, right? There was a lot of passion, but there was also a lot of operational knowledge that I was lacking. So in many ways, I was seeking to go work in an enterprise that would give me that experience and that exposure before I could venture back into building companies again. So I was searching through my network to see you know, what's, what's out there that would be interesting for me to do. And uh, Tesla was still a relatively young company, right? They had launched the Roadster, of which they had sold a couple of thousand, or I think it was exactly 2,300 or so vehicles. The Model S vehicle was, I think, just about being launched at the time. And uh, JB being a Stanford alum as well, had actually, and, and a good friend of Joe Benz, uh, I, I'd recall at some point had brought one of the very early prototypes of the Roadster to our, our office in, in, in Santa Cruz in Bonnie Dune. And I had the good fortune of taking a ride with him and just, just made acquaintance with him. Just happenstance, right? And so I took that as an opportunity to reconnect with JB through Joven as I was exploring new opportunities. I doubt JB will recall this with such fondness as I might, but he invited me to have breakfast at Alice's up here in Woodside in the Bay Area. And uh, we, we had an informal breakfast. And one of the things that continues to stick with me is how well he articulated sort of the importance of grid connected storage and not just the importance of electrification of transportation, right? And the other thing was his view, which was you know, based on reality because Tesla was building electric vehicles with lithium ion cells, that his view on the cost trajectory of lithium ion cells, 
on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. At the time, most economic models or grid models were looking at $750 to $1,000 a kilowatt hour, at, which was not very compelling. But then if you looked at what Tesla believed the trajectory was going to be or what JB shared with me at the time, I was blown away. I'm like, well, this is going to be real very, very soon. Like in the next four to five years, storage is going to be everywhere. When JB talked about this, you know, small R&D team uh, working on batteries that had been working on, on like a home battery or a grid-connected battery, uh, I jumped at the opportunity of, of joining that, that team and ended up connecting with his group. And this ultimately is the team that became Powerwall? This is a team that became Tesla Energy that was responsible for the Powerwall, the Power Pack, the Super Pack, now the Mega Pack, you know, uh, and now it's even bigger than that, right? The Tesla Energy organization does everything from uh, since the acquisition of Solar City, everything from solar to inverters to the solar roof uh, product, if you will, and grid services as well. I'm intrigued by what you said earlier. A lot of decision-making processes, understanding where you've come from to know where you want to go, recognizing where you have deficiencies and seeking to backfill those deficiencies, right? So for you, it was, there was a lot of operational knowledge that you felt like you were lacking. How did Tesla help you gain the operational knowledge? Uh, and what else do you feel like it gave you as, a, as you worked through, um, I think it was five or six years that you were at Tesla? I mean, Tesla Energy was like a startup within an otherwise large enterprise. That large enterprise was also a startup in a way, because it was a yet to be profitable um, vehicle manufacturing company that was absolutely going against the grain, right? But that gave me the opportunity to do a lot of things that um, that underfunded startups would not have been able to do. And there was a, there was a, obviously a tremendously capable engineering team that was behind the Tesla energy effort as well, leveraging a lot of the know-how from the world of building batteries and power electronics and drivetrains on the vehicle side of the business. Um, and I, I started to focus increasingly again on how do we write a playbook that allows us to take this technology and bring it to market, which means defining what the products actually needed to be what they needed to be capable of, and then matching that with problems that the grid was trying to solve, be it commercial industrial customers that had excessive demand charges that needed to address, or be it resiliency for data centers, or be it resiliency for homes, or large-scale grid-connected batteries that could, in an instant, help manage um, surges and sags in power, right? Understanding what those challenges were was, was a core part of my, my team's function, and then we built products to, to, to deploy against that. You mentioned you called it a playbook. And I feel like it's easy for us to kind of hear you tell your story and, and wonder without asking, but I'd really like any specifics you can give around, uh, you know, as, a, uh, as an entrepreneur, as someone who, I mean, this was arguably your first big company that you worked for. How did you go about understanding the structure of this playbook in a way mm -hmm. that informed putting that, that commercialization plan in place? Were there tools yeah. that you used? The best tools you can find are is being a sponge and learning from amazing people around you. Um, I had phenomenal peers. Uh, Matteo Jaramillo was was my manager while I was at Tesla. And uh, who was it? Matteo Jaramillo. Ah, yeah. Uh, he was yeah. an executive at Tesla. Uh, Greg Coleman was a peer of mine at Tesla, and these were people that I think I, I, I learned a lot from. Right. I had again been building products. Uh, been in the academic realm, had not so much in the commercial side of things. You learn by association and you have to be willing to learn from, from people that know more than you. Yeah. Right? Which means you have to be humble enough to put yourself in a position underneath folks that you can learn from. Uh, I, think Absolutely. That's, I think that's a really tough thing for many entrepreneur minded people to do, right? That they want to just be, be their own boss. So 
I imagine you must have at some, on some level struggled with that, or was it really just philosophical for you? I, I don't think I really struggled with that. I think it, it was, you know, I was still relatively early in my career. You know, I was five or six years out of, out of school. And is this still um, in your twenties? Uh, yeah, I was still in my twenties at the time, maybe, maybe late twenties. You know, I think it, it's, you, you recognize brilliance when you're around it very easily. Right. Um, JB is a really sharp, Engineer uh, Drew Baglino, who's now the, the engineering leader at Tesla, is an incredibly capable engineer. Um, the commercial folks that I mentioned were had had a lot of experience as well, so it was, it was very easy to. And Tesla was also the type of culture where you know you got easily welcomed into um, into learning and and taking chances and executing. Right, so perhaps not so much by well, but just perhaps not so much by design, but because you, you're an early stage early stage enterprise, you just had to do it. You just had to figure out how to do it. Uh, nonetheless, um, I, I was going to say that the, the people around me were, were a great source of sort of knowledge and experience, and um, I, I tried to absorb as much as I could. And but but the thing that I was trying to stay true to was the vector um, that vector of learning for me, which was how do I gain the operational knowledge that I want to gain, and which was at startups I had deployed you know tens of units of a product or hundreds of units of a product. Tesla really gave me the opportunity to get to a place where we deployed thousands or tens of thousands of devices at a global scale, not just in the US market and not just in California. And that kind of experience is really hard to get. It's really hard to just land in a place where you can get that kind of experience. And the five years that I was there, I was incredibly fortunate to see the design, development, and deployment of multiple generations of battery systems for the home, for commercial buildings, for the grid, and the type of environment as lies, you, you get dropped into problem solving many different things, right? Things on the engineering front, things on the business front, things on the service front. And that I'd say was perhaps um, instrumental in, in, and continues to be instrumental in how I think about building span today. Yeah, you know, I mean, the opportunity in your late 20s, early 30s to be early on a team, take on leadership roles and help define product direction. You can't replace that. It's something that is fundamental. Uh, I would imagine it's something that as well Lends, lends deep credibility when now uh, under direction for your current venture, uh, you go ask folks to support you financially. I wonder how that experience changed you on a personal level. Um, you went like oh, such, such scale over a relatively short period of time from going from a company that was a, a hyped auto manufacturer that is now, uh, as, we, as we well know, is valued as an energy leader, not as an auto manufacturer. What did you take away from that experience? Again, like with any experience, there are, there are a number of good things and there are a number of not so good things. I think for me, the, the most critical takeaway was the, the commitment to a mission and, and having a very clearly defined vision for the company. The why do we exist part has to be incredibly clear. Uh, and Tesla, I, I'd say more than any other company, uh, exemplifies that, right? And the importance of people, the importance of team, the importance of always looking to hire people that are better than you. Right. Needless to say, especially over the last half a decade, any smart person will tell you, or graduating from a university or college, will tell you they want to go work at Tesla for the experience, right? Because of how how incredible it is. We we still had our our group did, and I think across the board we did too. We had an incredibly selective process of uh, of onboarding or bringing people, adding resources to the team, and that that's that's been a very valuable sort of nugget of wisdom, if you will, that I've been able to carry over. Things that I think. Could, could have been done better, and I'm trying to do so with my current company, is uh, assigning human value to every one of these people joining a team. 
the objective is for people uh, in an organization is not to not to strive to be irreplaceable, but to be invaluable. Every everybody is inherently replaceable. Somebody could do the thing that you're doing. This is true for most people, right? Outside of maybe astronauts, everybody is fundamentally replaceable. But I think you want you want to strive to be invaluable to the organization that you're part of. The the company's aspiration, in a similar way, should be to ensure that you demonstrate that the company recognizes the, the value of the individual as well, right? I'd say Tesla didn't do a phenomenal job at that, mm-hmm. right? I'll leave it at that. I'm sure that we could do an entire episode just on the time that you spent at Tesla. And I find that uh, some of these conversations do require that we that we spend the bulk of time that we've done on on your background, because what many uh, astute listeners are going to catch is your acute focus on solving very specific problems for users with regard to how they um, how they view uh, energy and load and trying to help the energy grid broadly um, adapt to the new the new normal, the future that's coming. Mm-hmm. You took quite a bit of time off around 2018, started a family, uh, realized that you perhaps weren't being uh, valued uh, at the level that you wanted. And certainly the underlying entrepreneurial itch, I'm sure, was uh, getting too aggressive to not be able to scratch. So <laughs> yeah, can you help me understand the decision matrix that you evaluated uh, over that time off that led to mm-hmm. the current venture span? I, I suppose the realization that I came to was I had learned an enormous amount, like just, just the, the, the volume of experience that I'd gained in five years was perhaps twice that at least in terms of normal rate of gaining experience, so compressed learning at Tesla, as you will. But also realizing that Tesla was a, a, a global enterprise of, uh, with enormous impact, but to get there, it had taken them 15 years, going back to when they were first founded back in 2003. So it, it takes that kind of linear time to, to build products and brand and um, companies that can have impact. It wasn't about trying to build uh, you know, a success story in a year or two years and, and, be, and look for a quick exit, exit rate. So when I, when I left Tesla, I did, I did take time off, both because I wanted to spend more time with, uh, with my first child at the time, who was just a few months old, and and also just survey the landscape, go back and go back to the drawing table and understand, well, first assimilate the experience over the last several years to understand what I knew and recognize what I did not know. And then and then try to understand the landscape and see where I could potentially have the most impact. Right. And there were some observable truths that stood out. Things like, you know, well, first, there were things that I, I did not want to do. And then there were some observable truths about the industry that helped me sort of zero in on the problem that I wanted to work on. So. The, the, the high level weeding out, if you will, process was I do not want to work on science or science technologies that would take you know, a good part of a decade to be realized and still have a potentially binary outcome of success. I do not want to work on products and services that would be inherently dependent on massive regulatory changes or adoption by oligopolistic enterprises like utilities as being the primary source of revenue. I did not want to work on CNI products, as we talked about before. Just you know, uh, that that memory was fresh for me. Like that, that's a particularly arduous market segment to break into. But seeing that the residential space was galloping, yet not galloping at a pace that one would consider to be massive in impact. Right? If you look at the U.S. market, we have on average about a half million homes getting solar on their roofs, but that's still less than two percent of the U.S. Uh, the cumulative less than 2% of the U.S. homes that have distributed renewable energy. And that's 
uh, abysmally low if you think about impact. And then not to mention, if you look at it globally, it's, it's just heartening. A fellow uh, entrepreneur stated it to me recently, and it really resonated. He said, what other industry celebrates a 98% failure rate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you put it that way, it's, it, we, we should be all kicking ourselves, right? So those were sort of the macro things. I said, okay, I think the opportunity is in building products that are centered around the home uh, and also building products that the consumers actually want to get as opposed to things that are sold around the consumer, if you will. I'm fascinated by, and I just wanted to highlight one of the ways that you thought about the mental model that you used is not, what do I want to do, but what do I not want to do? So I appreciate that focus. No, no science and technology that'll take a decade and still might, you know, has a binary ch choice of, or chance of, of uh, working. Heavily regulated uh, industries out, CNI, uh, fresh memory. I think that that's an oft missed opportunity especially for folks in their mid thirties to, to take a step and step back and say, all right, what have I learned? What have I learned about how not to grow businesses? What have I learned through this experience about what I'm good at and what I'm not good at? So thanks for that perspective. Yeah. That actually is a good segue to like on, at a macro level, understanding what did I want to do then in the residential space, right? The realization that I came to was just building a software solution that, that tries to address energy services or the energy problem was not going to cut it because I didn't want to be outpaced or out-engineered by somebody with slightly more capital. And there's not as much stickiness to the software piece of it. But the real big realization was the infrastructure that you're working with, the, 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 the aging grid, if you will, uh, the pieces of hardware that tied them together, the interface to the grid and the home, which is your electrical panel, are all ancient in, in, the, in, in the technology sense. These are pieces of hardware that were craftily engineered like about a century ago and really haven't seen much innovation in over half a century. So I wanted to tackle a problem that was reinventing hardware infrastructure to make, uh, to make things fundamentally better, which, which raises the bar in terms of complexity and capital required to do so. But at the same time, I think you, that seemed like a complex enough problem to tackle that it was interesting to do as opposed to just going and joining another company, right? Of which there were a few options there. Yeah. So, so those familiar with Span recognize that the choice you made was to address, as I said in the outset, the humble electric panel, which is something that many, many have overlooked and that companies like Square D have dominated with a, a verily analog and we'll call it un, not, well, dumb as in like smart versus dumb technology, you know, uh, binary process. It's on or off. There's, you measure it by clamping a CT around the wires. And even then it's hard to tell what's, what's going on. Why choose to take on the likes of uh, Square D? I don't like to think of it as taking on the likes of Square D because fundamentally the product we're building is not just an electrical panel. It's, it's a IO device for all forms of energy and it's a digital compute device, right? It happens to be the box where your breakers sit, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot more than that, right? So again, the genesis of this was having been part of or having seen the deployment of thousands of solar and battery and EV charging systems at Tesla, there was a recurring sort of theme across the board, across the globe, which was in the best case scenario, the solution to a customer is not overly customized, right? By and large, every solar installation today is custom. We we every battery installation today is custom. Every home requires um, a, a site visit, a survey, electrical survey, a design, 
permitting installation and during installation, you, you bump into a bunch of different complexities of customer preferences, and there is no homogeneity in there. And if you think about it in, in the abstract, that doesn't lend for scale and that doesn't lend for cost effectiveness. So the vision, if you will, and going back to I think an earlier comment that I made, the thing that drives you has to be very clear. And for me, it is how do we get to a place where adoption of distributed clean energy is not an aspirational get for your home, but instead becomes an everyday appliance. You wouldn't think of a first world home today not having a refrigerator or not having temperature control, be it air conditioning or, or, or heating, if you will, cooling or heating, if you will, right? Because you don't think about those as being nice to have appliances, those are essential appliances. So if we want to have the kind of impact we want to have on, on abating climate change, then we need technologies uh, and offerings that make this as commonplace as your toaster. And that's not going to happen with the incumbent set of technologies. There are a number of companies working on higher efficiency solar modules, number of companies working on lower cost lithium ion cells and batteries. There are a handful of companies working on power electronics. But when you go to install it, it's still a mess at best. And I think we're looking to simplify that by building, uh, by reinventing the electric panel, both because it hasn't been addressed, like you said, and because it by design sits at the center of everything in a home, in a built environment. It's the piece that connects with the old forms of energy in the grid and the new forms of energy in your home. It's the piece that touches your generation and storage and all your loads, large or small, right? It's the multiplexing device for power coming in and going into your home. So if we make that more capable, just even incrementally more capable with integrated sensing and actuation logic, it's, it's incredibly valuable. If you've simplified the integration and deployment of solar and storage, that's, that's a big win in my mind. Well, it's clear that uh, at least some smart folks on Sand Hill Road and, uh, and in other uh, venture offices agree with you. You guys uh, in February, uh, sliding in just ahead of the pandemic, closed a phenomenal 10 million round uh, seed, uh, I think a series A, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I joke for me is kind of like you guys closing a funding round in August of 2008. I mean, we can only look in retrospect at how much easier, uh, even though fundraising is e easy, uh, it is or was for you over the six months prior uh, heading into uh, stock market all time highs um, compared to those who are trying to raise money now. Uh, how much of a game changer has uh, this uh, Series A been for you and how long did that fundraise take? That's a good question. And I think to, to be fair, while we closed it on in Feb of 2020, we actually signed our term sheet in December of 2019. So this was, um, we had already garnered the interest of investors before the pandemic was in full swing. You know, but that's not to say that investors would not pull out if they see something uh, that, that could be detrimental to what we are, what we're trying to achieve, right? or could materially change the course of our business. We launched our product in September of 2019. That was the goal. We, we started the company. At, S in at SPI. That's right. Um, so, you know, uh, going back to being very mission driven, like we, we started the company in September of 2018. We said it, within a year, we will launch a product so that we can tell the world that we have a product that is demonstrable, not just conceptually, but actually works. Um, so at SPI, uh, you know, we, we had a fully functional version of electrical panel controlling a mobile or a tiny home, if you will, with solar and batteries and electric vehicle charging and a handful of uh, electrical appliances. Um, that, was the, uh, that was the milestone we wanted to hit with the seed round of funding we'd raised the year prior. And the impetus for us to say, okay, between now 
and close to the year. My goal was by Christmas, we want to have a term sheet signed. And that was the um, a three month uh, period uh, where, where, where we went out and, and talked to a number of exceptional investors. Um, and we were fortunate to have more interest than we could bring on. So we, we, we were able to uh, be transparent with investors the same way they diligence us. We wanted to make sure that they were going to be the right partners for us. And um, along with our, our exceptional seed investors like Wireframe and Congruent and Ulu uh, and Wells Fargo and Energy Foundry and others, we brought on board two lead Series A investors, Arcturn Ventures and Capricorn. I'm going to dig into that in just a moment, but I'm curious, mm-hmm. what does the raise avail besides a runway? What does it avail for you? Uh, and certainly in 2020, which is a, kind of a crazy year. So I like to think of each stage as being hitting a, a significant objective or a milestone for the company. The seed round that we raised, which is you know, about three and a half million dollars back in the fall of 2018, was to get to the launch demonstrate that the technology is viable and get to a place where there's a version or a prototype version of the product working and there's some some indication of commercial interest in the product with whatever we had, like term sheets and MOUs, et cetera. With the A, the goalpost had to be obviously farther down the road. The goalpost for us was we had to have a UL certified product with steady manufacturing in, in, the, in the market through an, a whole host of installation partners and generating revenue. Um, and, and there are some other R&D uh, technology milestones that um, are probably best um, under the wraps for now, but those were the critical milestones, and we are we're well on our way. We we have a certified product, we have a manufacturing, um, an automated manufacturing line that is up and running. We are installing products with customers, and we are in revenue today. And to do so, I imagine you also were uh, able to bring on, uh, sort of grow the team to achieve those milestones, right? It's not, it's not easy mm-hmm. on, a, on a scrappy startup team to hit UL That's certification right. and manufacturing. Especially during a pandemic when testing labs were, were hard to uh, procure time with and uh, your, your field, um, sorry, your factory authorization inspectors weren't available to go out to factories, et cetera. So I personally think this is a testament to the quality of the team that we have. And we went from a team of, I think, around 17 or 18 people to now a team of around 28, 29 folks. And a big part of that was the team being exceptional, this, despite being forced to you know, work remote. And, and that's really hard for a hardware company to be remote. I have a question around that hiring because it's the, I think that inflection point becomes a really difficult one for many founders uh, if they haven't been uh, particularly thoughtful about the team around them. My sense is that you have and had um, been because of the experience that you had in prior, prior ventures, but if you were to give advice to someone going through a, a Series A now, who are, if, if they're not already on board, who are the two or three hires that that executive should be really focused on during, either just before, during, and right after, um, to make sure that you can scale appropriately? I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. I, I don't think there's a magic bullet answer, right? It's very dependent on the company you are, the stage of company you are. You always want to be bringing people on that'll increase the likelihood of success. And if you have those people around you, then you can demonstrate to the investors that the level of risk that they're taking by putting money in you is favorable or it's low. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list, but can be such a drag Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. 
Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Hey, have you been looking for a clever way to get on Suncast? Well, here's your chance. We've got a new segment called Suncast Weekly Roundup presented by LG Solar, and it's a part of the all-new microconference experience at North America Smart Energy Week 2020. You can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash SPI 2020. You can register with our discount code to get 15% off. You can share your takeaways for a chance to win fun prizes and follow along. And as I said, you never know, you might even end up on one of the segments, but you got to participate to win. Hope you'll join us. MySuncast.com forward slash SPI 2020. See you there. Have you been searching for that perfect rule that gets you into clean energy or maybe transitions your career to the next level? Might I invite you to check out LightSource BP? That's right. The global company focused on solar energy and low carbon economies backed by one of the largest energy companies in the world from strategy around the world to action locally you can be inspired and be the change by joining lightsource bp by choosing a career at lightsource bp you will join a team that truly cares about creating a more sustainable future for our world through safe and meaningful low carbon energy projects learn more and find out what career awaits you at lightsourcebp.com forward slash careers. I've talked to founders who on their roadmap, it says when we achieve series A, we will hire these people. And my advice to them is always, you really should try to get those people on to establish the credibility with your investors rather than convincing your investors that you will hire these people. Like, do you, do you have them already uh, signed up saying, yep, when you close series A, we're going to join. Um, like when you have the money to pay me, I'll be there. But I think mostly around HR is kind of what I'm thinking. Like, I think HR, like hiring is a difficult process. And when you're scaling 35% in, in the last, uh, you know, four months, five months, hiring either falls to you or it falls to someone you've delegated it to. Well, at this stage of company, and I'm a sole founder this time, but in generally at the stage of company we are, we, we just turned the corner on being two years old. I think it's important that I meet every new hire. Or every candidate that could be a new hire, even if they don't end up signing a contract, signing an offer letter with us, right? So, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, and this includes, you know, hiring, um, it's about demonstrating that uh, this is my takeaway. VCs do not mind investing in companies where they're they're funding, they're funding execution risk. But I I think that most VCs will be averse to funding companies that have fundamental technology risk or have fundamental product market fit risk right? Or commercialization risk, like path dependency on, like we talked about, regulated uh, markets, et cetera, right? I think by by demonstrating that either we know how to, or we have successfully de-risked those things, and that, look, there's a prototype of the product that works, and we are on, we have UL certification, or we're on path to getting UL certified, that part is de-risked. Look, we have signed customer term sheets at MOUs where they're willing to adopt the product if we build it. That de-risks the commercial part. Look, that also demonstrates product market fit, right? You have consumers signing up and asking about your product. That's great. Now it's like, okay, what's what's left to de-risk? Like, well, I might screw up the execution of it. So I'm going to go hire some exceptional people to make sure I don't screw up because I'm maybe not the best COO. I'm definitely not the best CFO. I'm definitely not the best VP of engineering for software. So let's go hire those people, right? 
uh, or look, I've already hired some of those people and I'm going to go hire some more of those people as we go. Right? I think that's that's the narrative that I think is both defensible and, and credible, right? As opposed to saying I'm superhuman and I'm going to do everything because I have this, this, uh, this, this faith. I think that there are a lot of companies going through the pandemic right now who, like you, probably considered additional funding. Did you guys look at taking on a PPP loan and how'd you, how'd you work through that? Yeah, um, that, that was a sensitive um, and I'd say a, a pretty intense window of I'd say four to five weeks when we, when we engaged in that. So like a lot of uh, venture-backed companies, there, there was a lot of uncertainty for us on the guidelines for eligibility for the PPP loan offered by offered by the government for small businesses. We did qualify as a small business because of the size of company we were, but the fact that we were pre, pre-revenue at the time and uh, certainly nowhere close to profitable, that meant that, okay, we should go ahead and get, get the loan, secure the loan. And we did. We, we had guidance from, from, from our, our legal team and we had guidance from um, other experts in the SBA loan domain and we secured the loan. But as we went through the process of doing it, the guidelines kept shifting as well, both in terms of demonstrating need and in terms of uh, the, the structure of the loan, if you will, fundamental structure of the loan. But I think more importantly, the decision point for us was more, for me, it was personal. And I'm, I'm really glad that I have a board that, that is like-minded in, in thinking about this as well. Um, the, the practicality, the size of the loan was meant that we weren't really going to extend our runway tremendously. It was going to be maybe a month or so of runway extension with that money. But the philosophical question that we grappled with was, are there other small businesses in the country that would better would be better suited by having this money? By, by where it ensures survivability, where it ensures uh, being able to keep certain people on payroll that otherwise would not be able to versus us, where we had recently closed around and we didn't absolutely need the money. But keep in mind, from a fiduciary standpoint, it's, it, was, it, it was a challenging thing to give up, right? But I think fortunately, the board and I aligned that it's probably best for us to return the money. And so we did. I feel really good about it. And I also feel glad that I have a team that, that was very aligned with that decision. You know, one of the things about your raise that um, stands out to me, just sort of having followed the hardware space, I mean, Congruent has become kind of a gatekeeper of clean tech hardware. Um, <laughs> have so, they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I wonder if that uh, relationship has been helpful uh, for you, having them on board to get others yeah. uh, in, into the round, uh, or if there were other um, catalysts for you that helped to bring the to bring that round to a close. Well, LinkedIn just reminded me yesterday that I've known ABOKL, the managing partner at Congruent, for nine years. Wow! Uh, but I mean, that that aside, and Abe and Josh are phenomenal people, human beings, and they've been in the venture space for energy, I guess, partially through conviction, partially through wins that they've had, and they continue to invest in this, right? So they are, they are, they are great to have on our team. They're great to, they're, 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 it's great to have had them as early investors. But I think it would be a little bit, I'm sure Abe will agree with me, a little bit misrepresentative to say that having them on board was somehow the catalyst to us, you know, fundraising with other investors, right? Each investor has their own set parameters of qualification and their own decision-making process or diligence process, it helps to have a syndicate coming together of, of, uh, of investors with a track record. And that certainly was aided by Paul at Wireframe leading our seed round, Abe, Abe and um, others joining the round. And they certainly helped make introductions uh, to investors that, that ultimately ended up joining the round. But like any company, we, we still have to demonstrate that there's something here that, that's worth getting behind. At least one person thinks there's something worth getting behind. Obviously, <laughs> those who uh, 
are familiar with Insight Ventures know that it's backed by Matt Rogers of Nest. It must have been exciting for you to have that sort of, I would say, technology validation for someone like Matt to say, yeah, let's, uh, Insight is interested in this technology. Were there any other moments along the raise that really gave you that boost of confidence? You're like, okay, we got Matt Rogers in. This is a, this is a great, this is great momentum. I think you'll see a consistent theme in all of my responses, all about the people. Matt is great. Matt, Matt is a really, really good engineer uh, and a really good product leader. Uh, obviously, he led the product efforts at Nest um, after leaving Apple. Little sort of side story there. I had tried to connect with Matt uh, during our seed round unsuccessfully uh, because he he'd also just had his first child. We ended up you know, not not connecting and I would have loved to have brought him on board in the seed round and didn't end up managing to do that. Uh, I didn't want to give up hope. So I, I we... We ended up using an industrial design firm called Bold, not just because they were really good at the design process that we aligned with, but also slightly because they had helped design the Nest. And I knew that Fred Bold would be able to reconnect me with Matt at the right time. And once we had launched the product uh, with the what I think is an aesthetically compelling design for the product, I asked Fred to reintroduce me to Matt. And Matt was slightly less occupied this time with, with a child. Um, so he was more, you know, more available, and we ended up connecting. We met, we met in our San Francisco office. I showcased what we were doing, and it was just, I think, to me, it was, it was instantaneous connection, if you will. Both of us being, um, you know, product-centric, uh, um, you know, leaders, uh, we, we, I think, we, we immediately sort of talked about all the things that were uh, similar and potentially more expensive than than net, what nested for the thermostat or what nested for, you know, similarly a piece of hardware that really hadn't seen much innovation in many decades that Nest addressed by digitizing it, making it more consumer friendly, and then delivering on an energy vision. Eight or nine years ago, I think when they started, HVAC or air conditioning was the largest load. That's no longer true, right? Now you have distributed generation, you have batteries, you have electric vehicle charging, and the panel does that, does what I think Nest did for, for the thermostat or what it did for the air conditioning load now for everything in your home. Yeah. I am so glad that you shared that story. I wasn't aware of that story. And that's the, how, the, how the serendipity of, uh, of these conversations can go. I mean, the thing for me that it highlights is the importance of the thoughtfulness of every element as a founder of who you are partnering with. Like the idea that you decided to use Bold because in some way doing it right, getting Fred Bold to say, yeah, we nailed this, opens the door again to Matt. I think that's, uh, I'm going to call it genius. Uh, it certainly is very insightful and intentional. Intentional part, I'll agree with for sure. The rest uh, is objectives <laughs> I probably wouldn't use, but yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I'll use them on your behalf. Well, you you have this product now backed by uh, some, some rather uh, impressive uh, entrepreneurs in their own right that we've discussed. Greenbiz did a phenomenal article back uh, after you did the raise about how Span turns homes into micro grids. How do you, as the founder, chief visionary for this company, how do you hope that the industry perceives SPAN as a component to the way that we sell energy products? The immediate application for SPAN today is when coupled with solar and batteries or batteries in general, because we, we are fundamentally shifting the narrative on how you can control your home and loads in your home when you're backed up. And, and the reason we started there is because that's a very crisp and clear value proposition to installers and the consumer, because that function, functionality simply doesn't exist today. And like other hardware companies that have tried to disrupt incumbents in the space uh, or aging technology in the space, we're going to be low volume, relatively high price, 
And we will proceed to make higher volume, low price products that then hopefully makes us the de facto panel of choice for every home, be it new or a retrofit, be it with solar or storage or without solar or storage, because that gives you the optionality to then add solar storage EV charging mm. in a flash. But in addition, it gives you this incredible visibility into your built environment, which simply hasn't existed. Yeah, we discussed it already. You were involved in metering and monitoring and a lot of energy efficiency have been centered around that idea of metering and monitoring. One of the things that I gleaned from a conversation that we had, I'll never forget, um, and I, don't, I definitely don't want to um, forget to mention it here. So we serendipitously met. And this is, again, to, for those who just wonder, like, how do how, how does Nico meet these people? I'm, I'm grateful that uh, Lisa Ann and her team brought you back around to be a guest. But Arch and I actually met very serendipitously on a flight back from Salt Lake last year to San Francisco, like ended up sitting beside each other. I didn't know you, you didn't know me. And we just started talking and I was asking, as I usually do, like, tell me about your product. Why does it exist? I had seen the tiny house and I was intrigued. And you said that something that stuck with me, you said, takeaway for you of evaluating the landscape was that monitoring without controls is inherently not that valuable and controls without intelligence isn't scalable. Can you tell me how that undergirds the, that undergirds the, uh, the thesis of your product? I, first of all, I have to say, well remembered, because <laughs> I recall our, our conversation on the slide being somewhat short, and I think I, I lightly begged. We, yeah. To be clear, we both <laughs> fell asleep as the plane took off. So this was the That's 15 right. or 20 minutes before. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I, I've, uh, I've used that as a mantra, if you will, over the last couple of years. I have another... Uh, I have another soapbox chant I'll share with you as we as we go through the discussion here. But that's right. I, I think you know monitoring without controls is inherently not valuable. When when I tell you what's going on, if you cannot act on it, what's the point, right? So when I think about CT-based metering technologies, disaggregation technologies, that's the big so what moment, right? And when it comes to control, you don't want the control to be a party trick. You want the control piece to be holistic and ensuring comfort and hopefully some energy savings or dollar savings as well, right? So what, what I think our panel has the ability to do because of the uh, compute built into it is understand what's happening across your home. Do you have your blinds up? Do you have your thermostat set to cool? Do you have an EV being charged while your pool pump is turning on? And then orchestrate that for you so that that decision-making is, is removed from your day-to-day -day life, right? That's the kind of automation we want to get to. So when we talk a lot about phase two of our vision, phase one of our vision is build a product that, that uh, ridiculously simplifies the adoption of distributed solar batteries, EV charging. But phase two of our vision, which is um, you know, borrowing Elon's parlance, our secret master plan part two, is how do you automate this? How do you get to a place where you're able to interact with your built environment in a way that you've never been able to before? And that's not about you know, smart appliance uh, automation. It's, it's really about Homes will become increasingly more electrified because electrification is coming. And when you do that, the panel becomes the most elegant place for command and control. So yeah, I mean, that, that, that continues to be true in how we think about our product architecture. We have embedded sensing and actuation and, and, and compute in our product from day one. You don't have to add retrofit any CTs or voltage taps or, um, or, or gateways into it. And we have controls at the circuit level built into it with the ability to now soon control state of appliances, like turn not just turn things on or off, but be able to control set points. Or to vary, appliances. yeah, okay. And in, in the way that Nest uh, was able to do. That's right. Yeah. You position it alongside paradigm-changing operating systems like Android. How does SPAN's SDK enable development for yeah. others? 
It will soon. It doesn't yet because you know we're still in the, in the early phases of deployment. But um, the the vision all along has been, uh, or the or the acknowledgement all along has been, we are not going to be able to conceive of and build every single application that a consumer might want. If you look at it from the bottom up, if we build an, a, a system architecture or, or the compute platform or the software development kit that allows both first-party applications that we build and third-party applications that, let's say, appliance manufacturers, you know, grid service providers, utilities can build and can be very easily deployed on our product, then you as a consumer can go into a Span app store and say, I'd like these third-party apps that gives the app access to sensors in my home, actuators in my home, and the compute in the Span panel, right? If you look at it top-down, I think there is a... Uh, this is a little bit of gazing into a murky crystal ball, but the world of smart appliances has significantly missed an opportunity in my mind because it's not practical to envision a scenario where, or envision a world where every appliance manufacturer ends up offering you a gateway that connects to your Wi-Fi router, a cloud stack, a set of APIs, and a consumer app. It's a, a, hardware appliance manufacturers are not very good at doing that. And B, you end up with an ecosystem of things that don't talk to one another, but end up becoming party trick. Apps, I have the right? same, yeah, I have that same question. It's everybody's got an app. <laughs> yeah. So what if we, and this is the, the what if part of it, I think if you're successful in deploying any of our panels, what if we were to be able to go to any appliance manufacturer in the world and say, look, we have a device that by design is a persistent gateway. Once installed, it's in your walls and will be in your walls for the next 20, 30, 40 years. We have the ability to monitor not just one device, but every device in your home and potentially control a subset of them. We have compute and a software architecture that allows you, let's say, LG or Bosch or Gaganow or Mila or PG&E to just drop an app into our device that now gives you the ability to use our wireless communication protocols and our compute to just talk to your appliance in a very simple way. I think, I personally think that could be pretty interesting, uh, especially, again, the, the theme comes back to electrification. Homes are going to get more and more electrified. That's, I think that's, I don't think that's an overstatement. Yeah, but what does it save for the manufacturer? What are they otherwise doing if they don't partner with, with Span? Some are doing a better job than others in providing an interface to the customer, right? But I think it's pretty fair to say it's, 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 it's like that XKCD comic about standards. You know, everybody just believes that they can do it differently or better. I'm not saying we've cracked the, cracked the code on it, but I think what we're saying is we're building a platform on a piece of hardware that's ubiquitous and necessary. The electrical panel, there isn't a single home or building in the world that doesn't have an electrical panel. If you make that panel intelligent, if you make that panel versatile and has hooks into everything in your home, why not have that be the backbone, potentially? We're not striving to become the human machine interface or the de facto user interface to the customer, but we can serve that up whether you are connected to the internet or not, because we are physically locally present there and we can see and talk to everything. Very interesting. So it, in some ways, can run, uh, it can be a friend to Samsung Insteon or Z-Wave that's or right. Zigbee. Yeah. That's right. And that's how we've architected it intentionally. And that's where I think, I mean, again, not, not to divulge too much of what's coming down the road here, but I think, yes, some people want to be able to control their vacation home from you know, halfway across the world. But for the most part, you're looking at people sitting in their living room, being able to do things in a seamless way. And I think we have the opportunity to offer them that. It's actually, in my view, it's one of those things that, uh, look, uh, all of our lights are on circuits. The circuits all run to the, to the circuit panel, presently are trying to control by Wi-Fi bulbs that have uh, receivers in them. 
mm-hmm. instead of simply modifying the amount of, of, of electricity that reaches the bulb and having mm-hmm. a bulb that can modify, which we already have, right? We have the ability to dim and, and raise light based on the amount of current that reaches that bulb. Um, it seems it. to me in the in the Star Trek world that we all grew up believing is possible, hey, computer, turn off the lights in the garage, which now is uh, sort of represented by your Google or, or, uh, or Amazon Echo device, that functionality should be running, uh, certainly as, as uh, you would pr- uh, posit, I, I assume, that functionality should run through the electric panel, not through the bulb itself. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. And I'll, I'll take that analogy one step further and maybe use something that is a little bit more valuable than a light bulb, if you will, right? Think about the, the emergence of security cameras in your home. They're all plugged into a wall socket. They are internal and external. But there is one fundamental flaw in all of them. They have to connect to your Wi-Fi router, which connects to your ISP. And let's think about that. The ISP could drop like you've experienced on this call, or you could have a power outage. What better solution than having SPAN ensure that that circuit is backed up and always permanently backed up and providing our cellular gateway, providing a secondary backhaul, which again, provides persistence and permanence. Yeah. Instead of having a UPS randomly placed around the home. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Again, not trying to overshare our roadmap here, but there are very clever things that we could do by sitting where we sit. And I think there is a long way to go before we can actually extract that value by deploying thousands of units. Um, another example is I could have, um, I, I wish I could have foretold using the panel as a data acquisition device that my water heater was going to burst a year and a half ago when it did. Because we could have seen the electrical, uh, the, the, the surge in consumption when it was trying to heat up water when the water was leaking. It ended up causing a failure and a flooding in my garage, which needed me to go Yelp and find the, the fastest and nearest service provider and the insurance cost, like all of that, like that it to me is immeasurable, incalculable value. If I could have told, if the, my, my future me could have told my past me, hey, Arch, your, your water heater is likely going to burst. Would you like me to send a service provider over right now? Click here on the SPAN app. Arch, it's clear that there's a lot of intentionality and a lot of focus on the consumer and the consumer experience. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share with others how uh, our industry, namely solar and storage, can benefit from these first principles thinking around the how, how the consumer is experiencing being in the home, not using the home per se. One of the fundamental areas of growth that we touched on earlier was around the influences that you seek or that um, appear around you. Uh, we mentioned recently bringing folks like Matt Rogers on as, uh, as advisors and investors, uh, but even earlier in your career, folks like J.B. Strobel uh, and, and others before him uh, that infl- informed how you think about problems and how you approach being an entrepreneur. What are some of the key lessons or takeaways that you've gleaned from the most important mentors or influences in your career? You know, I think it goes back to uh, being, being fortunate, having great parents and, you know, having, having a family environment where I was encouraged to, to challenge the status quo. My dad was uh, uh, an incredibly thoughtful person and he, he, he really allowed me at a very young age to sort of explore explore things that I wanted to explore as opposed to trying to you know, put me on a track, if you will. Right. And that, that was, I'd say, you know, my, my parents were, were a very strong influence in, in helping me think about, helping me evolve how I think about things. You know, I, I remember writing my essay to Stanford, uh, going from undergrad in India to grad school at Stanford. And I think the, the opening line and the general theme of my essay was about, uh, was about choices and about 
there being events that happen in your life that you don't control, but then there also being events that you seek and uh, that that the the key driver for me at what was I 17, 18, whatever, 20 years of age, maybe at the time was, was always seeking the things, even if they may be hard to get, as opposed to waiting for things to happen, of which there were a number of good positive things that happened, you know, circumstantially or organically, but you have to make an active choice to go and seek, seek the experience that you want to get. And the experience that I wanted to get coming out of my undergrad program was going to Stanford. And I think, you know, that, that was, that was the, that was a theme, if you will. And since then, I've been very, very fortunate to either come in, come into contact with, or, uh, or, or find exceptional mentors academically. Chris Edwards was my my uh, principal investigator and and um, uh, academic counselor. For, like he he sponsored my graduate program, if you will. He was an exceptional um, teacher, um, not just teacher of science, but teacher in life. Like he, um, in fact, he was the one that posed the question to me, where he's like, "Arch, are you sure you actually want to do a PhD? Because it seems like you'd be better off going and doing." other interesting things like building products. His name was Chris Edwards, is that right? Christopher Edwards. He's a mechanical engineering professor at, at Stanford. And he was a great he was a great advisor. And I went and sought, while I had dropped out of the PhD, um, I, I still wanted to learn new things. So I went and I, I made contact with Dan Kamen at Berkeley. Um, he's a preeminent you know, energy scientist, um, um, Nobel awardee. And I just reached out to him and said, hey, is there any way I can help with some of the programs, research programs you're working on. This was, you know, I, by this time I'd already started working at Joby, but I just wanted to work on projects that were interesting. And Dan invited me to come and hang out with his research team and uh, work on this production costing model where they were doing kind of similar things, where they were exploring the impact of uh, high penetration of renewables, the impact of electric vehicles, impact of uh, 100% renewable energy grid. And they've published extensively since then, right? Uh, and Dan became a great, great sort of unintended like you know, counselor for me, and it was great. So cool. Yeah, along I, I, we talked about Joe Ben, uh, who again, randomly somebody on his team found me and reached out when I when they found out I was at Stanford and I was about to leave Stanford and asked if I wanted to have an interview. And it came from this company called Joby that was making camera tripods, and I'm like, that's so far out of my field of vision. I don't know what this is about. Joe Ben just grilled me for three hours on the state of the electricity grid and how you would interconnect large scale wind and it so happened to be the area that I was spending a lot of time thinking about. And he was like, dude, do you want to go and build this flying wind turbine product? And I'm like, that's awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> right? He had been incredibly successful building a medical devices robotics company and then subsequently started a consumer products company called Joby Photo. And so, you know, when I, when I got an invite to talk to a company called Joby Photo, and I'm like, this is, this is not an area that I want to go into, nor do I have any experience, like, you know, designing consumer products. But then I realized Joby was actually, you know, I would like to think that he was being intentional in trying to find the people that he wanted to bring on board to to build build this project or you know kick off this project, which subsequently became Joby Energy, then ended up becoming part of Makani, which became part of X. I, I wasn't part of the rest of that journey, but uh, it was incredible for me to be uh, shadowing Joven, who was uh, a really strong engineer, and at the time, already at the time, back in the 2000s, a serial entrepreneur. I, for one, and I know I speak for many who've had the privilege of listening through this conversation am grateful for the abundance of time that you have taken out of a busy Friday. So let's end today with a bold prediction. I'm certain that you have pondered uh, as uh, this conversation would, it would, uh, would insinuate. What one thing or things uh, or direction generally do you see happening in our market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball, Arch? 
Solar is no longer the right anchor product. Electrification is. Uh, over the last 15 years, solar has had a tremendous uh, distributed solar, home solar, if you will, has had a tremendous uh, um, run, and it'll continue to. I'm not saying it is, it, it won't continue to grow, but I think its applicability and the inherent complexity of designing and permitting and installing it uh, makes it not the product to lead with uh, into the next decade. Um, I think there are uh, a number of other products that are better suited for it, like electric vehicle charging, home batteries, uh, electrification of home loads, uh, like your heat pumps, uh, your air conditioning systems, your uh, water heaters, et cetera. That's the ecosystem that we are trying to find, SPAN is trying to find a central position in. Because we can enable faster adoption and once deployed, enable on a, on a, on a, for a long period of time, better visibility and controls and automation of, my prediction is that solar will no longer be the, is no longer the right anchor product, but electrification is. Arch Rao is the founder and visionary for Span.io. It has been a pleasure to spend this conversation and this time with you. Thanks for being on Suncast. Likewise, Nico. We've come a long way since our serendipitous meeting in an airplane. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. The pleasure is all mine. Whoo! I really love that conversation. All right, Solar Warriors. I hope that you are prepared more than ever to take on this energy transition with renewed vigor, strength, insight, and tactical advice. Arch, thank you so much. We're honored to have you here on Suncast and really grateful that you set aside the time. It was a pleasure to finally, finally get a chance to sit down and have this conversation. Well, if you are eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion here on Suncast, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more from all of our guests on the blog at mysuncast.com. And since you're in that action-taking mood, while you're on the website, give me your two cents in just two minutes through our listener survey. I'd love your feedback on how I can keep making Suncast more of what you crave. I hope that you don't miss our live show tomorrow, Friday, as it's the last of our weekly roundup for this year's North America Smart Energy Week, sponsored by LG Solar. That is going to air on LinkedIn and on our YouTube channel at 4.30 Eastern Pacific Time. But hey, if you do miss it, it'll be right here in the podcast feed on Tuesday as our weekly Tactical Tuesday episode. And next Thursday is our longer form conversation with founders, executives, change makers, and thought leaders in the clean economy. And next week, we're featuring Emily Wangerman, Vice President of Business Development at LightSource BP. Join me as I explore Emily's humble path to prominence and ask whether taking on BP as an investor actually helped her biz dev prospects. It's another conversation that you don't want to miss. So make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast and I'll see you right here next week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.